Ah, Lord, we love the sweetness of your presence. Lord, we know that you're drawn to worship that is offered up to you with grateful and honest hearts. Lord, we want to be everything that we can to exalt you in all of your glory this morning. But now we sit as those who are ready to receive from the waters of living, uh, the rivers of living water that flow out to us from your living word. Jesus, thank you. Help us to understand what it means to be a saint, what it means to be a holy one set apart for you and unto you and by you for your good purposes. We love you, Lord. We ask now that you would speak to us, that your spirit would impress the word on our hearts so that it doesn't just stay within these walls, but we take it with us out into our lives beyond this place. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning. Happy to be with you all. It is uh, a a celebration today, what we rightly call Halloween. And uh, for most Americans, though, that means uh, an increased consumption of corn syrup products and ghoulish costumes and things like that. Uh, But the word Halloween, actually, it, it, it comes from Halloween, meaning Holy Eve. And it's the night before the church's celebration of All Saints Day, which we celebrate today because it's on a Monday this year and we move it to Sunday so that we can celebrate it in our worship. Uh, The uh, tradition of uh, celebrating this goes back possibly all the way to the Middle Ages when actually the, the Christians would dress up as creatures of light, angels and saints and martyrs, and they would celebrate the faithfulness of those who had gone before them and departed and been to be with the Lord. And so when someone says, don't celebrate Halloween, that's the devil's day, you say, no, the devil doesn't get any of God's days. Thank you very much. This is a holy day. I will not participate in the darkness and the ghoulishness and all of the immoral stuff out there, but I will declare that this is the day that the Lord has made, and we celebrate those who have faithfully gone before us. But we also realize in talking about All Saints Day that we are included in the word saint because it's not just saints departed, what we call the church triumphant. It's also the church, the militaristic church that is still on earth fighting the battle for the victory of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. And so really All Saints Day, it's a celebration of the victory of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. But I want to talk today about what it means to be a saint And uh, the word saint just means holy one. That's why some Bible translations in the New Testament say uh, holy ones of God and some say saints of God because it's the same word. But the uh, really the fundamental idea of a saint or a holy one, if an object or a person is holy, it has to do with proximity to God's presence. So something is closer to God. It is set apart for his purposes. It reflects his glory. And we call that thing holy. Okay, so I want to talk about proximity to God's presence today. I want to talk about a popular idea or I want to kind of dismantle a popular idea and try to get a more biblical understanding of what it means to what our final destiny is. Now, we live in a culture that thinks that Christianity is largely irrelevant because it's a bunch of people who believe uh, that if they believe the right thing and they do the right thing and they're goody two shoes through all their life, when they die, they get to go to a nice place called heaven. And they're like, oh, being a Christian is about going up to heaven when you die, and that doesn't even really sound that fun, so why would I be interested in that? But I've entitled the sermon today a question, and the question is, up to heaven or back to Eden? And I think that you're going to understand by the end of the sermon what I mean by that title, but I want to flesh that out because 
being a Christian is so much more about a being a, a moral person who gets to go to a place in the clouds or something when they die. It's about so much more than that. It's about living life here and now uh, in the presence of God. When you look, when you open the first pages of the Bible, you read about this place called the Garden of Eden where God creates human beings. And that garden actually is described in, uh, with imagery that a lot of Hebrew scholars think that it was at a, in a mountainous region. It was maybe at the top of some kind of a mountain because of the way that it is described. And that's important for something that we're going to get to in just a minute. But God, as the pinnacle of his creation, creates man and woman... And he breathes his life into them and they are created, we are told, in God's image. Well, what does it mean to be created in God's image? Well, it means that we have human, it means we have dignity. Well, it does mean that in a sense, but that's only derivative. What the Bible means by being created in God's image is that you are an image bearer of the good and glorious God of heaven. And you're meant to reflect his image in the world around you, his goodness, his love, his justice, his mercy, all of those things. And so when God tells Adam and Eve, go be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over the earth, he's saying, I want you to go and represent me rightly to the rest of my creation and spread my kingdom throughout the rest of the creation through having families and building civilizations and through creativity. And it's all going to be done in justice and love and righteousness. And then this serpent creature shows up. We're not going to go too much into that storyline we did in our Sunday school class this morning. But he lures, he's some kind of a spiritual being who lures humanity into a rebellion against God. And they fall for it. And so what happens at the fall, what we call the fall into sin, is a loss of eternal life. They are, Adam and Eve are removed from God's presence. They get kicked out of Eden. And that's uh, such a tragedy because Eden is where heaven and earth overlap and God's presence and his his quality of life, eternal life and all of its glory is there in Eden. But Adam and Eve get removed from it and then God kind of closes Eden and guards it from them. That's their punishment for their rebellion against God, for choosing a different way. And what happens is that God actually brings curses and the curses are temporary because we see that they're going to be removed by, before the end of the Bible storyline. But the big curse is the curse of death that kind of settles over the earth as this kind of dark shroud that everything now throughout human history is going to be tinged with this kind of the shroud of death. Everything and everyone are going to die eventually. Okay. Now, in the rest of the Bible story is about how God is actually not done with this world and with his creatures. He's actually going to do something to undo the power of sin and death. Okay, so that's where the biblical storyline begins, and we start moving forward, and God chooses this man named Abraham, who lives a righteous life, and he says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of children and descendants, and through your descendants, I'm going to give my blessing to all the nations of the world, okay? So we see that God has actually kind of scattered the nations and sent them into exile because of sin. But he also promises, I'm going to bring blessing to all of the nations. And he says, I'm going to do it through these people that we know as the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham. And so God blesses Israel and he says, you are my chosen people. And he says this to them, you must be holy for I am holy. 
Okay? That is, you must remain in my presence. You must be set apart for my purposes. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you. I'm your father. I'm your creator. I'm your redeemer. But you are to be holy. Okay? So the Israelites were called to be saints. All right? We could just put it that way since it's all saints day. But what happens is, instead of reflecting God's goodness to the other nations and drawing people to the true God, they, just like Adam and Eve, fall into sin. They follow the gods of other nations. They get wrapped up in sin and immorality, and they just keep failing over and over and over. And we see like, oh my gosh, it's just this nightmare is happening again. The same thing that happened in Eden is that there's this power that gets a hold of the human heart and drives it away from God. And so uh, just like Adam and Eve, Israel fails to rightly represent God as image bearers to the rest of the world around them. And God's heart is broken over that because God wants to reach the rest of the world. He wants to bring people back into his presence. He's a God of love. I was so undone when we were singing Jesus Messiah, what he went through for us, all for love's sake, that he became sin on that cross and, and, and took it upon himself. And so God, even though Israel fails, his love drives him to continue to pursue humanity. Because he's not done with his creation. And so what happens throughout the Old Testament is we start reading the story of Israel and we get to all these passages that almost seem to describe something like a restoration of Eden. Where there's blessing and feasting and God's presence is there and his people are drinking wine and having a wonderful time with him. And there's no more suffering and we get these glimpses of what looks like This wonderful place where heaven and earth are again overlapping. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 25 because this is one of the great examples of it in the Old Testament. So we have a people who are in exile. They are under enemy rule. And Isaiah is one of the prophets who is preaching to them. And he's doing two things. He's calling them to turn away from their sin and their idolatry back to the God of Israel, the true God of heaven and earth. And he's also speaking promises of restoration of what God wants to do in the midst of his people. Okay. Everybody tracking so far with the, the storyline. This is just the Bible storyline. We're kind of plowing through it fast. But we get to Isaiah tw- chapter 25. And what this is, we just heard it read up there from the uh, lectern a few minutes ago. What this is in Isaiah 25, it's actually a picture of an inaugural banquet. Where, where it would be common, this kind of a banquet would be common at the coronation of a king. Okay? That's what this is a picture of. And what would happen at these sort of coronation banquets is that the new king who was being crowned would bestow favors upon certain people and he would basically be giving his blessing and setting out his, his purposes for reigning over that people. Okay? So it was this glorious feast. And we read this in verse 6. On this mountain... Often when the Bible says mountain or mountaintop, it's also making some kind of implied reference to a place of blessing or where God's presence dwells. So he says on this mountain, and he's speaking about Jerusalem, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. Okay, so use your imagination with me, but uh, this mountaintop, it's sacred space. It's a picture of sacred space. It's a kingly feast. And it's at a mountaintop, okay? So think Eden, okay? Everybody say Eden, okay? So think Eden, okay? So 
he goes on and he, he says, this is going to be a feast of rich food for all people. But what's interesting about this feast is that the Lord Almighty himself is serving it. Okay, so this is a picture of God among his people serving this glorious feast of wine and, and, and delicious, uh, you know, smoked pot roast, whatever. It's glorious meat that melts in your mouth. It's described very lusciously and deliciously. And he's, they're having this wonderful feast, okay? And he says it's a banquet for who? All peoples. Meaning there's going to be people from every nation represented at this feast. This is a picture. It's pointing us forward to something, towards the future. It's going to be a picture of all people celebrating in the presence of God from every nation. And what this is, it's a vision of hope. That through a particular people, God is going to bless and restore all kinds of people in a place that is like Eden. Okay. Now, it goes on and it says this. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. So, there's a problem that hinders this feast from happening between human beings and God. And the problem is the power of sin and death, which Isaiah is describing as a shroud that lies over all people. So remember, why is that there? Because of Adam and Eve's sin. Now there's sort of a shroud over all the earth and over all humanity where death is only, only a matter of time from all of us and from everything. But it says this, on this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. Okay? So death is exile from God's presence. It's being removed from his glorious presence and all the blessing that comes with it. And that's the shroud that hangs over humanity. We are born separated from God's presence. Okay? It's true. It's, it's, tr- it's not good news, but it's true. But there is good news. And the good news is, is that there's these promises in God's word that God's going to remove that curse and that shroud of death from over all of humanity. And he's going to make a way for this glorious feast in his presence to happen. He is going to restore Eden. Okay, that's the storyline of the Bible, how God is pursuing humans to do this and to accomplish this. And death will no longer one day be a part of human life. In the ancient Near East, they often described death as swallowing up her victims. So that the author of Isaiah is being very intentional here by saying God will swallow up death. It's like, yeah, it's a glorious picture of victory of God's victory, even over that final curse that lies over all of us, which is death, that we lose our lives. And it says God is going to swallow that up and it will no longer be a part of human life. There will only be joyful feasting in the immediate presence of our loving God. And God is going to wipe away tears. There's going to be no more suffering. See, our God is anti-death. He's anti-death. He's pro-life. There's multiple meanings to that. But our God is for life in every way. And this passage is inviting us to look forward to the rest of the biblical story. So let's jump into it, shall we? Okay, I'm excited this morning because this is, this is seriously important stuff for our lives in the here and now. So the rest of the Bible story is about God undoing this problem of sin in the human heart and removing the shroud of death from over humanity. So it's God in his extravagant love doing everything he can to get us back into his presence. Okay, that's and that's what Eden was all about. God dwelling with people. Now, Israel, as I said, they did not follow God. They did not carry out the mission to reflect him to the world. But there is one Israelite who does. And his name is Jesus. And he lives a pure 
life, following the Father's voice and the Father's law and everything that he does and perfectly representing the Father to all of humanity. And he comes out into public ministry at about 30 years of age and he begins to announce that God's kingdom has been inaugurated on the earth. When Jesus comes out of the waters of his baptism and the Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove on him, we are seeing a coronation service. It's his kingly inauguration on the earth. The banquet has begun. Okay, And so every time Jesus begins to move throughout the world and he pronounces the forgiveness of sins over people's lives, he heals people of their suffering, he sends demons out of people, what he is doing is undoing the power of sin and death. That's what his ministry is. He is destroying the work of the devil and undoing the power of sin and death. Jesus, listen, Jesus is working toward the renewal of Eden. You tracking with me? Okay. He's working towards the renewal of Eden. He's establishing a place where heaven and earth can meet, but he's doing it in human lives. Where heaven and earth can meet in a human life. And those who are changed by Jesus become indwelt by him because when we put our trust in him, his spirit comes to live in us. That's Holy Spirit. And that's what makes us saints is that his Holy Spirit lives in us and makes us holy. And now we are saints. And today we celebrate us and all of us who have gone before us to be in his greater glory. Okay, does it make sense? All right, good. I know it kind of goes like this, the storyline, but I think there's a, there's a trajectory here. Okay, now, there's still in Jesus' life and ministry, while he's showing glimpses of sin and death being undone by healing sick bodies and casting out demons and forgiving sins, there's still this shroud of death that hangs over humanity that has to be dealt with. So what can be done about this? How will this curse be undone? Jesus is, for his entire ministry, he continues to talk about his own death. It's a very odd thing for any glorious figure or teacher or prophet in history to constantly make references to their own death. But he's, it's constantly on his lips. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the Sadducees, and he will be killed, and on the third day he will rise again. And he's constantly talking about his death, and his whole ministry moves toward... Calvary. And the Bible tells us that what Jesus was doing on the cross was bearing a curse. He was taking a curse on himself. The book of Galatians says that. It's making a reference to something in the Old Testament that said anyone who dies hung on a tree is cursed. And so Jesus dying on that tree is a picture of him taking the curse, the shroud of death over all humanity, taking it into himself and taking it into the grave and swallowing the shroud of death once and for all forever. Can somebody say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? Okay, I hope you're excited and awake now. So Jesus swallows death. Isaiah 25 ringing a bell. He swallows up death into that tomb and he is raised three days later to life and death has been defeated. And now those who put their trust in him, death will not have the final say over your life because you will be raised to new life like him forever. (laughs) That's the good news. That's the good news. But here's what's happening. It's not just about you getting forgiven of your sins and going to be in heaven when you die. It's that Jesus has restored you to God's presence. 
He has brought you back into Eden now. Because now we, the saints of God, are the dwelling place of God. We are the place where heaven and earth meet. You don't realize what you carry. You and I don't realize what we carry when we go out into the world. Because we listen to the lies of the devil and say, you're not good enough. Don't tell that person about Jesus. You don't have enough time to pray. We don't realize what's in us. And we need to cry out that God would release it like a river from our hearts. Because you have the ability to walk into a coffee shop or a school or a college campus or a grocery store and release the glorious presence of God to people around you. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. That's what it means to be a saint. Not to be some holy and pious person who never steps out of line and has a halo around their head. It means to flow in the Spirit of God, to be filled with the Spirit of God, to walk around on this earth as where the dwelling place of heaven is in you. That is, it's so much more exciting than, well, I get to go to heaven when I die, so at least there's that. (laughs) We've missed it. No wonder so many people have lost interest in Christianity as fire insurance. I want to say just a few things about being a saint, to be a carrier of God's glory, a dwelling place of God's awesome presence. Now, is the ministry of a saint to convince people to go to heaven? Not exactly. Because being a saint is not so much about going up to heaven as it is getting heaven into you. I want to say that one more time. Being a saint is not so much about going up to heaven as about getting heaven down into you through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ. He wants to live in you here and now and give you a new life where you live a life of justice and peace and righteousness and spiritual power that changes the world around you and the people around you. Every Christian is in some sense should be a leader in their community, even if they don't bear that earthly title. Uh, John Maxwell famously, I think it was John Maxwell, famously defined leadership as influence. He said, leadership is influence. Every Christian should have some influence on the people around them if you are truly God's dwelling place. How can you not? Bearing heaven in the depths of your spirit as you walk to and fro (laughs) the earth. So by word and by deed, what we are called to do is to call people to repent, to turn from their, their, their current way of life, of unbelief, of ignorance of God, of sin and immorality, and to turn and to believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and to themselves become the dwelling place of God. To get back, get the, we want to get people back into Eden. You hear what I'm saying? That's what we want. Not, not some vague hope about where they're going to go when they die. That's all taken care of, for sure. We're going to be, when these bodies die, we're with him forever. But we've got to realize that that quality of eternal life, that power of the Holy Spirit, is already in us now. And that's why we will be raised up. Because death cannot hold him down. So, when you look at the the ministry of uh, the early church in the book of Acts, they are not trying to convince people just to say a sinner's prayer so that they go to a nice place when they die. Read their sermons in the book of Acts. Read Peter and Paul's sermons. They are trying to see people's lives transformed in the here and now. This is what, let me just read this from Acts chapter 2, Peter's first big sermon. He says to this when the people ask what they're supposed to do because they realize that they're guilty before God. And he says this. 
repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will be immediately ushered into God's presence and his spirit will come to live in you. They were less worried about getting people up to heaven and more worried about getting them back to Eden here and now. You see what I'm saying? Now, that's the ministry of a saint. It's not, not, not just to, 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 to make converts who go to a good place when they die. It's to see people's lives change because Jesus, the spirit of Jesus himself, comes to live in them and transform them from the depths of their being. May it be that we be a church who does that, that sees people's lives change because we preach the fullness of the gospel that, that brings about that kind of transformation that only God can bring in a human life. And the, you read through the book of Acts, and these, these, these human beings who are indwelt by the presence of God, they go out and they proclaim the message of Jesus in extravagant spiritual power. They lay their hands on sick people and they get better. They drive out demons, people who are tormented by darkness. They drive them out with a word. And w- what is the church doing today in America? I don't see a whole lot of that. And perhaps, and this is a word for me too from the Lord, but this is going to sting. But I think instead of making excuses for not reaching the lost in our daily and weekly lives, maybe we need to repent of our lack of hunger for the indwelling presence of God and reclaim that power and presence that is in us and ask God to release it again. Myself included. It's not about... It's not even about, we're Holy Spirit people, but it's not ultimately about getting people to have glorious Holy Spirit experiences. That's not the, the goal. We want that. We love the presence of God and we want glorious Holy Spirit experiences. But the purpose of getting indwelt by the Spirit of God is to go out into the world and to tell people that Jesus Christ loves them and died for their sins and that they can become his dwelling place. That's eternal life. To know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he had sent in friendship with God. It's so exciting. It's so exciting. Now, concluding. What God does in each person, each Christian, each person who believes in Jesus Christ, that makes them a saint by indwelling them, filling them, he is going to do on a cosmic scale for all of creation all of creation will be baptized in and filled with the spirit of god and you and i are little microcosms that reflect that before the fullness of that time comes revelation 21 this is where the bible ends says this john is seeing a vision of something that's going to happen that has not yet happened he says i saw a new heaven and a new earth Remember, what is Eden? Dwelling place of heaven and earth together. John says, I see a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Okay? He says, I see a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. So this glorious city, glorious civilization materializes out of heaven, and the heavenly realm comes to earth. Not, not, it's not us going up to heaven, it's heaven coming down to earth and all of creation is restored and Jesus is king over all of his creation and all of his followers the Bible tells us will reign over the nations with him for all of eternity okay heaven is not boring playing harps and la 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 with wings or something like that it's, that's not a biblical view of heaven 
Heaven is living into the new creation, the new heaven and the new earth, the glorious new Jerusalem in the fullness of God's presence. It's going to be amazing. Jesus, face to face with Jesus. This is a picture. Now it goes on and it says, look, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne in heaven and it said, look, behold, pay attention. Here it is. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will be with them. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will, by his death and resurrection, have restored humanity to the Garden of Eden. And now it's not only a garden, it's cultivated into a glorious city. It goes on and it says in Revelation that all the kings and the nations of the earth will bring their glory into the new creation, into the new Jerusalem. So everything good and beautiful and glorious here about art and creativity and economics and all of that stuff is somehow, it seems like the Bible is saying there's going to be some continuity with it into the new heaven and the new earth. Okay, so we're not like so heavenly minded that we don't do anything of earthly good because we're just waiting around to die. We should be the sort of people because we are saints, because we bear God's presence that are involved in the arts and we are involved in music and are involved in writing and literature and are involved in in creative business endeavors. We Christians should be influencing the culture around us in profound ways because heaven is in us and we can bring it to earth. (laughs) That's exciting. I want to live that life. And, and by the way, you get to go into heaven or whatever you want to call it, into God's presence in all of its fullness when you die and lose your earthly body. So that is a part of it. Okay, I don't want to dismiss that. But the center of this vision, Eden restored. Okay, so we lost Eden at the beginning of the Bible. You go all through the story of the Bible, and it's God in his love and in his mercy and in his justice pursuing humanity. And at the end of the Bible is a picture in Revelations chapter 21 and 22 of Eden God's dwelling place being restored and God is once again back with humans in all of the glory of his joyful presence. That's where we are. So our calling as a church is that, is to be a dwelling place of the living God when we gather together and in our worship and we we should expect God's Holy Spirit to meet us and work deeply in our hearts as we gather together and worship, but also as each of us go out individually from this place to be filled with the Spirit of God and to let those rivers of living water that Jesus talked about flow from us. Whether it's in simply sharing the gospel with someone who is an unbeliever in words of gentleness and kindness, or whether it is laying your hands on the sick and healing them, whether it is uh, serving the poor, whether it is forgiving an enemy, you and I are called to reflect God's goodness and mercy in this world, in his power in this world around us every day of our lives. And there's opportunities every day that we go out into the world. And we're probably missing like 99% of them. But God still rejoices when we get one of them. And so I, I want to challenge us to be looking for those opportunities. We are, you are a saint. God looks at you and he doesn't say, oh, there's a crummy kind of half successful failure who sort of does some nice things. God looks at you and he sees the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ. He says, you are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. It's signed and sealed. The document sent forever. It's not going to change. And his love doesn't shift up and down with you based on how many good deeds you do for him. But you are called to transformation. You are called to increasing glory, which means to shine him to the people around you. Amen? Okay. Good. 
And the, the, the question I think that we, I just want to leave us for it with today. And a question that the Lord has been asking me, I feel like lately is, do, do you really hunger for my presence? Not just for you, but for the sake of the world that I want to reach with my love and my forgiveness. Do you really hunger for my presence? And he's calling each of us by name today to be energized by that question. Do I hunger for his presence? Do I realize that I'm a dwelling place of his presence? And when I hunger for more of it, he'll release more of it through me to the world around me. So, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. Amen? Lord, when we come together in this place, we have the opportunity to uh, be re-energized, to have our tanks filled uh, because we have the gift of music, which, which helps our hearts soar on the heights of heaven and brings us up into your presence. So, Lord, I pray that none of us would miss the opportunity that we have today in this place for the remaining time in here to be hungry for your presence and to sing to you with glad and grateful hearts that we are saved, delivered, healed, and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ and that we would leave this place so filled with the knowledge of who you are that we would go out eager and expectant for you to come and meet others when we open our mouth to proclaim the goodness and the power of the gospel to them. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.